this episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello, and welcome to NextQuest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Amanda is still out on tour this week, unfortunately driving during our recording time today, um, but we do hope to have her back for the next episode. Um, each and every week, Amanda and I come up with questions for each guest, so I'll be asking hers in her absence today. But on to the show now. Today, we welcome to the show Erin Ebert, Licensed Clinical Social Worker Supervisor, who will be speaking about her practice in an area of interest, navigating wellness in a weight-centric world. Welcome to the show, Erin. Thanks so much for having me, Noah. I'm excited to be here. Me too. I love this topic. Um, so to get us started, what are your credentials and experience? Sure. I am a licensed clinical social worker supervisor. Um, most of my experience comes from working at every level of care in eating disorder care from outpatient to residential. Um, I've worked for some big treatment centers, smaller treatment centers, um, CBT trained, all those good things. I think in relation to this topic specifically, I also have quite a bit of lived experience as a person in a larger body um, living in a very weight-centric um, world. So I probably have a whole lifetime, like 38 years of experience on that front. Well, then I've got the right guest on the show for this. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So Erin, what is the name of your practice? Um, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? And also, do you have a sliding scale or reduced fee option available to clients? Sure. I am a like, sole proprietor. My business name is Erin K. Ebert, LCSW, which is me. Um, I do not accept insurance anymore. I actually just wrapped up with United at the end of January. So <laughs> I did take uh, two big insurance plans for the past couple of years and have recently transitioned off mainly because it, 
a lot of hard work and um, I had experiences that I don't think were centered around providing good client care. Um, I One insurance company thought that they should stop providing telehealth benefits in the middle of the pandemic and then said that they were going to raise the um, threshold for, so they would have a separate telehealth like uh, maximum. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there was always the like, are they going to cover it? Are they not for telehealth? And then I kept getting asked by a third party vendor for the records. And I was like, this feels really uncomfortable. I don't understand why you need this. And they're like, well, it's not for clinical information. It's to make decisions about benefit. I was like, Uh-oh. oh, so you're trying to get my information about what services are being used how much it's costing you and then what you cannot cover in the future. Absolutely not. I want no part of this. So I sent them a full disclosure. I'm a child of an attorney. So I probably sent (laughs) a fairly uh, curt message about this isn't in my contract. If you can show me where I'm contractually obligated to comply, I will. And until we do that, like you're not getting anything from me because I don't want to release it. And then I never heard again. So I, I'm probably just like a small fish to them. So, I mean, they were asking for like less than five people's information, but I still wasn't going to give it to them. So the long and short of it is I feel like I have more autonomy and more freedom to offer sliding scale, reduced fee options when I'm on my own. And I also think the thing that is a struggle with insurance is providing the diagnosis like so quickly. I have clients that either aren't interested in a diagnosis. I remember I, I saw a straight white man or something and it wasn't anything that could be diagnosed and trying to explain that, like, he's like, well, then I can't use my insurance. I'm like, we would probably say you don't need it. And he's like, but I like coming to talk to you. I'm like, yeah, that's part of the <laughs> That's part of the challenge. If things are going too good, they don't want you here either. So all of that together kind of led to this. I've got to do something differently and not look like leaving insurance. Yeah, it's hard. I, I, when I when I made the decision to get off of insurance, it was quite the internal struggle because, you know, you want to be accessible to people, mm-hmm. but also, um, you know, it's a recipe for burnout for therapists who are, you know, the therapist in their practice. <laughs> yep, absolutely. It's, there's a lot to say on that topic. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, that, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> it definitely is. We have quite a few episodes. <laughs> okay, cool. So um, as far as the modality that you're seeing clients right now, is it purely telehealth, in-person, a combo, where are you at with things? So right now it is 100% telehealth. Each time I have thought about going back to the office, like sent the email, like, hey, we're going to do this, a variant has popped up, so we have not. I am someone who I think was lucky in a way pre-COVID. I had been offering telehealth before COVID, so it wasn't quite the learning curve that others might have had. And it is an option that I will continue to provide because not everyone I see is an Austin resident. Everyone needs to be a Texas resident. Um, But I do see folks that aren't necessarily in Austin. So telehealth won't go away. My 
hope is that we can get to a point where the hybrid is feasible, but yeah, we'll who knows when that'll be. <laughs> okay. So is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was, and what was it that ultimately drew you to being a therapist? Sure. Um, being a therapist is not my first career. I worked in higher education administration prior to being a therapist. And in my view, these two things really go hand in hand. I pursued working in higher education because I really believe that that age range when folks are typically in college is a really transformative experience. And that I wanted to be able to be a part of that for other students. And so after I had gone to graduate school, I got a job working at Texas A&M and I really had a positive experience working at A&M, which is an interesting story for another day, but I went to University <laughs> undergrad, um, some of my grad program and uh, my friends all encouraged me to apply at A&M because I love the South and the big football school and all those traditions. But the things that were cool about working at A&M is I worked primarily with freshmen. I worked with advising student organizations, so doing um, like volunteer trips, alternative spring break trips. Um, I got to take students from the Valley that had never seen the ocean before on their first flight and we went to California and they got to go to the Pacific Ocean. They, there were so many cool things about that. Um, and I saw that the impact that I wanted to make needed more education. Like the students that were in crisis are having a hard time. There wasn't necessarily access to all of the things um, that they needed or the counseling center was flooded or full or what have you. And then I had my own experience needing um, mental health support. I was like, okay, this is the avenue. This is the next step. And so really making that transition to going to school for social work at Texas and then ultimately having my private practice. I love working with folks that are in transition in their life and trying to find ways to think about who they are, who they want to be, who their authentic self is. Um, and I think all that started in when I was working with folks in higher education. So, and I love working with college students, like helping them navigate resources they might not know about, but I do, because that was my field for a long time, is also like an extra bonus that feels really good. Oh yeah, I, I love working with college age students as well. Um, okay, so in your work with clients, what modalities do you draw upon and what sorts of evidence do you rely on to support your treatment of choice? And how do you stay up to date on new information or approaches? Okay. <laughs> that was a lot of things to break down. <laughs> I the modality that I was first trained in was CBT. I still use that with clients to the extent that it's helpful. I would say that I have probably migrated more often to ACT. Um, mainly because the work that I do with folks is so lined up with values anyways, that using values as a framework for doing things, not doing things, making choices mm -hmm. is really important. 
I tend to have a pretty eclectic approach because of the variety of individuals that I work with. Um, there are things that I love from lots of different, uh, I guess, training philosophies. Um, in in terms of like, what is the, how do I know which one to use when, or what is the best one of choice? I think since I work with eating disorders a lot, there's a, a variety that are evidence-based, but I also struggle with that because there is no evidence-based approach that supports like, queer folks in healing from an eating disorder. There is not a true. practice. My long-term bucket list goal is to be the person that develops, like this is what we do in treating queer individuals with eating disorders, um, which probably ties into new information and approaches I went back to school to get a graduate certificate at LG, of LGBT health policy and practice at George Washington University. Cool. I will get that this spring. Um, and my capstone was all about uh, LGBT eating disorders, specifically uh, queer women in eating disorders. And so I stay up to date really from doing a lot of research, being in the research. Um, and then belonging to, you know, local organizations and it's like our IDEP, like all the eating disorder kind of groups that are working on things. And there are voices that are being left out of that conversation. So I think I'm also pushed to show up to be a voice in those conversations. Yeah, totally. Makes sense. I mean, same kind of goes for, you know, the community of people who work with gender. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, um, so, so now just to get a little more info about you, tell us a little about yourself. What are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music you're listening to, pets, etc.? Sure. Um, I am originally from the Seattle area. I went to school at the University of Tennessee, um, for undergrad and I've done a lot of higher education, but like you can usually find me watching Tennessee football during the fall. Um, being embarrassed about, you know, various fan behavior, but I can't break up with them. It's terrible. <laughs> uh, so I love sports. My, um, like, I shouldn't say quarantine. My COVID pickup was uh, Drive to Survive, which has translated into a true obsession with Formula One racing. And all <laughs> of my clients are completely shocked because I don't necessarily, I guess, to them seem like someone that would love uh, Formula One. The other thing that I love that my clients think is hilarious is I love, I really like to gamble, particularly play backjack and my fiance and I enjoy going to Vegas. I am, from my client's perspective, generally seem pretty risk averse and I am a planner and usually pretty structured. And so when they find out these pieces about me that I will gamble and do things, they're like, what? It's a wild thing. So I like to have a lot of fun. Um, I also love adventure, whether that is packing, hiking, being outside. We're doing my bachelorette, not like one would think. We're going to Sun Valley, Idaho to have like an outdoorsy experience because that is my preference. And we have two dogs, my fiance and I, um, Alamo and Lone Star. 
which are our Texan dogs. We have like a very Texas. <laughs> yeah. We have a roster of like dog names that uh, kind of follow a pattern that you have already picked up on. <laughs> so yeah, those are the main things about me, I think. Awesome. Um, I'm a fan of adventure too. And, um, you know, some activities that people uh, traditionally probably wouldn't associate with me, <laughs> like fishing, for example, you know, I, I love to fish and, uh, you know, I mean, I guess I, surprise. what was that? It's always great to surprise someone. Like I think that's yeah. an important part of life. I don't want to be pre too predictable. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. So in the work that you do, how would you describe your ideal client? I think this is such a hard question because when I think of ideal, I get tangled up in that word. I think the clients that I enjoy working with slash enjoy working with me are people who have a sense of humor, don't mind some cuss words here or there, um, will keep it real and really want to do the work. I, and that kind of sounds the work therapisty, but if you are someone that I don't care if it takes us years and years and we are like moving the needle at a slow rate, that's fine. That's great. But it is hard when it's like, I'm here because someone else is making me be here. So that probably tends to be a challenge. But I love with working with all different kinds of folks. So I have, I work with folks struggling with eating disorders. I work with high achievers, perfectionists. I think I probably resonate with that crew the most because I am definitely one of those people. Um, and yeah. the other thing that I'm probably known for is some wild analogies. So if you work with me, um, you gotta be able to, what typically will happen, I'll say, I'm gonna say something, it's going to sound a little wild. Are you willing to go with me? They're usually like, <laughs> and then I create some analogies. So today I was talking with someone who I know is a skier. I also see, and I was like, okay, so, you know, if we're in a situation with like fresh snow, we've got to be loose and you don't want to be, you know, if you are too tense, it's not going to matter. And I was like, if we try to over control in situations, like when it's icy, we're going to end up eating it. It's going to be worse than when you started. And I was like, that is what's happening here. You are trying to over control something and it's not going to go well. This is just like the skiing down the very icy slope. We cannot over control that. And really it will feel counterintuitive, but if you will get looser, it will go better. That's where we're at. And so any type of analogy like that may come into play. So it, I try to do it in a sense that ties into what people like um, or what I know about them. But I find that analogies or metaphors or things that we do in our life help make therapy more real or more able to be integrated. It's not just something that's happening across, I almost said in the room, but really across the screen. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's important too. Like if you are not someone that likes a cheesy therapy metaphor, I may not be the person. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's good for people to know. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that stuff is important and, and it's as individual as each therapist. And, you know, I think 
it is much better than being formulaic. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't go ahead. I was just thinking it's like while um my overall temperament, I think my friends would say I'm probably I don't want to say rigid. I'm probably consistent and uh pretty planning oriented. I think my adaptability tends to show up more in relationship with people because to me, I want to know my clients in a way where I can be like, I know this is going on for them, or I know this is relevant versus CBT would have me do this right now. Like, yeah, is yeah. there merit in that? Sure. And I am way more relational than that. Same. Totally. Totally. Okay. Well, I'm excited to get to talk talking about your topic, navigating wellness in a weight-centric world. So the first question I have for you, um, which is kind of part statement, part question, um, is I think it's important to define terms. So what is wellness and what sorts of services does this typically include? Oh my gosh. So this is a huge question. And I actually thought about this leading up to our conversation today. And one of the articles that I found said that wellness started be, started becoming popular in the late 1950s, and now there is an even bigger push. And I found out it's a one and a half trillion dollar industry, which is wild because as someone who typically rails against like the diet industry, yeah. which is a billion dollar industry, the fact that wellness is more than that. I think it's because the diet industry, in my view, is collapsed within wellness. Um, mm. So I also found, you know, there's like an organization that talks about like, we're the international wellness people. And so they talked about physical health, mental health, spiritual health. And I think in a way, wellness has all of those elements to it, um, especially because the wellness gets towards it's like the act of pursuing feeling well or good or health but i tend to try to extract health from it just because that can be like ableist and healthist and i don't think that the pursuit of health is necessarily mandatory for everyone like some people would be like i'm not here for a long time i'm here for a good time it is not my job to be the healthiest i can be which you do you like so what is wellness? I think a lot of things can fit into wellness, but I definitely think there is a tinge of, it has a incessant attitude towards it. Like it's the constant pursuit of, like, I don't know anyone that's like, I achieved wellness, check. <laughs> um, so there's kind of this persistent pursuit of, and then I think it really ties into our bodies, how we view ourselves, our emotions, um, and I can share that other article with you as well, which I think was a really great option. Yeah. 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 Please. I can put that in the, uh, the show notes. Oh, cool. Yeah. I will absolutely share. Unless there's something you want to make, make sure you mention specifically from it. Oh, no, I'll share it with you. Cause it's long, but, um, the, the focus was like, it started in the fifties. And it goes on to talk about the link between perfectionism and this wellness culture and how we end up almost gaslighting ourselves because wellness tells us that it's a constant pursuit 
that we keep doing activities to feel better, but there's no relief because we keep like moving by its nature, the finish line is ever moving. So then we feel terrible and burnt out. And it's just an awful cycle. Yeah, that makes sense. I hadn't thought about it in that way before, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And okay. in a way, I think it ties to diets too, right? Where most people are like, I was on this diet, but it didn't work for me. And we get really mad at ourselves that a diet doesn't work, but no one turns around and is like, oh, hey, diet industry, you're actually the problem here. The same thing can happen with wellness, right? Like, whether it's, oh, doing that meditation in the middle of a global pandemic when we didn't have a vaccine was terrifying and I didn't actually feel relief. We tend to think it's because we didn't meditate right. When really, it was, there was no way five minute guided meditation that your agency put on for you was going to bring down your nervous system to a point where that was okay. And so by thinking like, oh, well, I just didn't meditate right. That is not helpful. That leads us to a not good place. And so we keep this pursuit, we keep buying, we keep accessing, we keep doing, and then we don't find the relief. Yeah. It's kind of like, I I, kind of liken it to, in some ways, to the fact that we have to brush our teeth every day for the rest of our life. <laughs> you know, like it's kind of one of those things. It's a, a perpetual like seeking of something, um, you know, and sometimes brushing your teeth every day uh, does keep you from get, getting cavities, right? But depending on your genetics, it may not. Um, not so <laughs> that, there's, a, there's a little uh, metaphor analogy for you there. Um, uh-huh. So why do you think talking about navigating wellness in a weight-centric world is important? From my perspective, I think that, one, doing this on our own, the pursuit of wellness, I think there's a couple different things. I think there is like an Instagram version of wellness of like, here, look at me, I'm checking into my, you know, whatever class it is, where we share our wellness acts. But I don't think we ever talk about like what it feels like to be in pursuit of wellness, especially if you are someone who may not look like you belong there. Um, Or people are surprised to know you care about that. Or I think about these different things that we've heard about over the course of the past couple of years. And I think about like the unlikely hiker Instagram and Facebook group. It's like, oh, I might not look like I hiked. Why did what? why do we have to look like something to hike? It's so wild. So yeah, uh, like, like, like you, yeah, like, like people love to categorize things, I think is a part of it. Yes. And, you know, sometimes that's helpful because that's how our brain makes sense of things, but our brain also tends to make sense of unhelpful things because we need to unlearn some things, whether that's about race, gender, class, femininity, masculinity, there's unlearning in that too. So what I think the importance of talking about wellness is that wellness can get conflated with weight or lack thereof, right? Like your weight, the indication of your wellness, which I don't think is true at all. And people can manage, I say manage in air quotes, weight in ways that are very unwell, 
but it gets glorified. So those two things are so intertangled and intertwined. And I think there's shame and really uh, tense things around talking about weight or talking about like, oh, that wasn't the experience that I had, or I didn't feel comfortable to go to that yoga class, or I didn't feel comfortable to go to that group fitness class, or whatever it is, who do you say that to? Like, and we just turn it inwards, and we're like, well, I guess it's just me that didn't like that thing. And then we end up, again, with that gaslighting of ourselves. And I know you had someone, uh, Nethery was here and talking about body trust. And I think this goes back to that conversation of, how do we trust our bodies, our mind, and what we feel and what we believe if we're constantly saying, I'm the problem, not the situation? Like, sometimes we might be the problem, but that is not the, like, answer that we should go into every scenario with. Of like, oh, guess I right. just have the wrong body. Oh, guess I'm just the wrong this. That is not right. our default. Yes, I, I love that. Love that. And so that kind of brings me to the next question, which is Amanda's question. Um, She wrote, some have argued that dieting and exercising is a symptom of a larger toxic societal expectation of certain glorified body types. How would you rectify this with people who want to lose weight for the purpose of wanting like less joint pain or greater athletic ability? I sit with folks searching for answers to these questions all, like each week. Um, and could some of that be accurate? Um, sure. We know that having a stronger core may help with back issues. Like we know the biomechanics that that can be true. And that doesn't mean the only way to have a strong back or a um, core that is working to support your body is by getting thinner or being um, in a more desired or glorified body. We can have a strong core and not look a certain way. Um, typically, when folks are experiencing like the joint pain, like, oh, well, I want to get smaller so my joints will hurt less. And like, keep in mind, thin people have joint problems. <laughs> like, right, yeah, yeah not a given and the greater athletic ability I think can be a misnomer sometimes um, because I think we need to break it down into function um, so when I'm working with folks whether it's they are working on their relationship with exercise or their body or whatnot I talk about like what are you trying to do like oh well I want to have more ability okay so are you saying you want like your heart rate to be managed in a different way you want to work on your like cardiac ability, you want your stress test results to look different. Like, what are you actually trying to do? Because if you want to do a, you know, physical activity three or four times a week because that is your goal, great. If it does not change your physical, like aesthetic body or your weight at all, will you still do that same activity if you are achieving that outcome? And the answer is yes, then rock on. If it's, no, I would get discouraged, then we still need to talk about that body change. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Because I think it's possible. Um, As someone in a larger body who was an athlete for a pretty decent chunk of my life, I still am, I think, a lot more capable than people think. 
I am, and so I get the like the classic like fat girl comment is oh, just such a pretty face. <laughs> There's that one, or the like oh, you wear it so well. That is so great. But then when I do something like a physical accomplishment, people are like, oh, "Go you!" And it's so patronizing because <laughs> I think about like. Ugh different 5Ks I've done or the different 10Ks. Like, I did a 10K in Vegas because, again, love to gamble. And I didn't want to do the 10K. I wanted to do the 5K. But the 10K gets to go down the strip at night, and they shut it down from car traffic, which, as a Vegas person, that's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go further. So I do it, and then people are like, oh, good on you. Yes. I'm like, what? what? No, I did something aligned with my values, which was not running. It was, I, I love Vegas. I like to gamble and I want to do something with my fiance. <laughs> so it's, the people's perception of things is also very interesting, I think, as well, when we think about motivations and why we're doing stuff. And to me, most of the things I do, whether it's in nature or movement, is not targeted around changing my body. I have PCOS, the likelihood of my, I've had a hysterectomy, like the likelihood of my body changing significantly is very, very small. So I'm going to just keep doing things that make me happy. And my happiness is not built on your approval of my activities or lack thereof. Totally. And I can kind of liken that to um, like being trans and being told by cis people like, oh my God, you're so brave. You know, like, bitch, I, I, you're calling me brave because of your own privilege here in the first place. You know, like, <laughs> do not. Um, so brave to be yourself around people like me is what right. you're telling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I feel that. I feel that, and, and I hate. I hate that people just have those sorts of experiences. Period. Uh, I think our society has so much to unlearn. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that. As at least as a woman who's about to be 38, close to 40, I was socialized that that was those things were compliments, and at least they're telling you something nice. Like it was, I was not ever offered the like perspective that that would be rude or an unkind thing to say until we had more conversations about how I I don't owe you my body. And my body is not to be consumed or ingested or approved of. Right. And we don't have to accept or expect the bare minimum. Absolutely not. So tell us a little more about what your experiences have been around navigating wellness as a person in a larger body. I've thought about this a lot since we have been talking about doing this podcast and they think that there are experiences that people don't historically think about. Um, we had talked about, I got my hair cut yesterday and I think sometimes that's a wellness experience or at least for me, because I feel really good when I have my hair done. Um, but then I think about things like, are the chairs accessible? Is, you know, the little robe that you wear when you're there accessible for bodies like mine or people like me, Maybe. Um, I also, I think the other place that this is taking me to is my 
discovery in this pandemic has been a local spa resort here in the Austin area that I love going to. Um, and <laughs> I am, like I said, living in a larger body, but I think I present as like a pretty basic white lady sometimes. What is true is that I might be a little basic, but not, <laughs> I am not the person that people expect. Um, I, most people don't like clock me as a queer person. Um, I think I drive a white SUV like lots of other basic mid-30s women. Um, and I definitely blend in very much with that like soccer mom crowd. So when I showed up to the spa for the first time, and I was there and there was robes in the room, but the robes didn't fit. So I called and I was like, oh, can I get the plus size robe? And they said, yeah, sure, no problem. But then I thought about, oh my gosh, how many other women do I know that would have just suffered or not worn a robe or been like, oh, it's not that big of a deal, rather than placing the call to get something to make their experience more comfortable. And then I continued on, you know, throughout my stay at the property and they have a whole boating operation, which is where I spent my time. I didn't even really go to the spa. I think I might get, I think I got a facial the first time I was there or a massage. I can't even remember because the spa was not my goal. The water was. And it was such a transformative experience to be with people doing these things that wouldn't be expected of my body. And it's been interesting because I've been three times in the two years we've been in COVID mainly because you can always eat outside. Temperatures in Texas are fairly temperate to social distance most of the time. And I spend a lot of time outside. So I got to have this very cool experience of water skiing for the first time in two decades. And cool. I wanted to learn how to wake surf. And they taught me. And am I the best person in the world at it? Absolutely not. Have I made progress over the times I've been there? Yes. And what's been so interesting is the amount of times people are like offering feedback. And I can't figure out if it's because I'm a woman, because of my body or, a, a you know, combination of the two. But when I was there last, I, we were coming off the boat and it was me and uh, another woman. And then the person who was driving, but it was also a woman and this man came up to me and said, that, that, I think that'd be a lot easier if there was like, you know, things for your feet to go in on that board. I'm like, well, that would be a wakeboard. And I am not trying to wakeboard. <laughs> it's a completely different thing called wake surfing. And I was so irritated and then just tried not to talk to him. So then the next day I went and did the wake surfing and I, after the time was up, I went to like the restaurant cafe area and he felt that it was appropriate to provide commentary across the cafe, like across where all the tables were, which brought another person into the conversation of like, well, why did you fall so much? And I was like, why did you say that to me? And I said, well, I was having a hard time because I, you know, surfed for the past three days and my hands are literally bleeding from holding onto the rope. And it was like, she didn't believe me. And I walked over and I showed her my hands were bleeding from doing this. And I was like, why, why, why do you think it is appropriate for you to give feedback on something I'm doing? 
I was there being taught and coached and instructed by someone like no joke, she wouldn't brag on herself. Cam is a world-class water skier, literally world-class airfoot water skier, captain of the team at her college, like incredible. So I'm being coached by a world-class athlete. And you think that you could tell me that I am doing this wrong or why am I not doing it good enough? And I'm like, that's why no one talks about it. That's why we, that fear of critique or people thinking that we're doing it wrong or seeing us do it wrong, I think really keeps us from engaging things. Like, do I want to go to that yoga studio? I don't know what I'm doing like those other people. Do I want to do X thing? I don't want to look stupid. So I think part of this conversation is how do we own our experience and how do we ask for what we need to make the experience accessible to us? Like, I, you know, the conversation I had was like, okay, well, do you have a life jacket that will fit me? Yes, they did. Great. But I asked, I mean, I asked about it and I asked for the robe that I needed. And if you need to ask about, you know, the table for the massage, do it. But there's not inherently shame in that. And so part of me is like, if we are going to have this wellness industry that's $1.5 trillion, how, and, and we choose to engage in it, how are we getting our needs met, and how can we reduce shame from asking to have those needs met? Because if I'm going to pay just as much as the person next to me, I should be getting the same experience in theory. And so I, I guess part of me is really passionate because I want all, I want everyone to feel comfortable going to a place like that because it is so good for my soul. And I know that not everyone will because they don't feel like they belong there. I'm like, no, we belong. Um, and we just got to get other people you know, on board or making room at the table or however we want to phrase it. But the wellness industry and wellness isn't just for people who fit the societal norm. Like we all deserve peace, wellness, and good things. And if that means we got to ask for it until people start realizing that it should just be available, then I'm going to keep asking for it. Yeah, and you know, as you were talking, I wrote down a thought I had um, in regards to people giving you unwanted, unasked for feedback and commentary. Uh, you know, I think it's just that people feel entitled to give feedback, and it's coming from a place of privilege and feelings of superiority, as well as a sense of discomfort. Um, and you know, I think that we can see evidence of this. Um, from people in various places of privilege across various types of marginalized communities. Absolutely. And as you said that, it made me think of um, that like external embarrassment. Like, did you ever watch American Idol back in the day and they would have like the bad singers on and then I would get like external embarrassment for them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if there, if like the people at the cafe were experiencing that like embarrassment of like, oh my gosh, that bigger woman trying to do this thing, what what on earth is going through her mind? Why would she do that? But if they were there and then they had been in the boat, they would have known that I was having the best time of my life. I was having really, you know, in therapy, we talk about a parallel process and part of learning how to do the surfing really has been unlearning about me and myself and my body. And it's so interesting. One of the things that Cam always says to me is she's like, 
it's like if I'm pulling you up from the ground. And I'm like, okay. She goes, if you try to help me pull you up from the ground, that just doesn't go well for either of us. And she's like, you got to trust me to pull you up. I'm like, okay. She goes, you got to trust the boat to pull you up. And so when you're there and you're floating in the water, and then you look at the big boat, you're like, of course this thing can pull me up. Like, what? <laughs> of course. And that doesn't mean that I always act like it. And when I didn't trust the boat, that is when I just ate shit. Always. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how many other places does that happen that we are not trusting the thing? And for me, it's, it's in particularly because when you are in a fat body, you learn how to do things. Like you learn how to sit on a chair with not your full weight. You learn how to sit on your partner's lap, not at the full weight. You learn how to dress a certain way. You learn all of these things so you aren't undesirable. You aren't taking up too much space. You don't do these things. So it's like this parallel process of unlearning those things, which I, you know, sitting here with you today, I'm like, I think that I'm so far past that because I do this work all day and we're not. We're still human. We still default to, you know, original manufacturer settings sometimes. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it happens. So having these moments in the boat where I just, you know, ate it was really about, okay, what, what weren't you trusting? Well, think of how many times we say that to folks in therapy. What are you not trusting about yourself? What are you not trusting about what this person is telling you? Like, what are you not trusting uh, your body to do? What are you not trusting that your body can do with the food that you're feeding it? What is worrisome about eating that thing, right? So it, to me, that's why water is so important and being on the water is so important because I, it is a constant parallel process. Um, and I think it serves such a good um, kind of metaphor for life as well. But the people in the cafe are never going to know all the things that I'm learning about myself and the world and life. Because, and it reminds me of that Brene Brown quote, right? The people in the arena don't count. It's the people who are, or the people in the stands don't count. It's the people who are in the arena getting their ass kicked. Well, you weren't on the lake eating shit and getting like water up your nose. So your feedback, I'm not interested in. Right, right. And I think that's part of that privilege too. Um, Here's another question Amanda has for you. Uh, She wrote, While society has a stringent ideal body standard, it also appears to lack support for larger body types, particularly women, to be able to work out. Um, She says, I find that as a woman of a larger body type, it's almost impossible to find workout clothes my size, at least at an affordable price. Why do you think this sort of gatekeeping exists? I wish I knew the answer to why it exists. I believe that that's a fact right now, you know, I'm wearing my Athleta favorite pants and I was like, Oh, well, she should know about Athleta. And then the affordable price, you know, caveat came in. and I love Athleta and it is not accessible for everyone. Um, so I think that is such a barrier. And I would say my bias is when, and I don't even care if it's an athletic company, but for example, my favorite shorts in the whole wide world to wear are Nike shorts. I'm sure you've seen every like college age girl wear these Nike shorts. They're the exact same ones I wore in college. And you can get them in plus sizes, but you cannot buy them in a store. Like I have never been able to walk into Dick's Sporting Goods and see my size with my sister's size, ever. 
And I'm like, by putting it online, you're telling me you do not want me in your store. So whether that there are bigger brands, you know, um, like Loft had a plus size line and then they eliminated it during the pandemic. I'm like, what happened? And for the website, like we had to make financial choices. Right. But if most of the women in the United States are oversized 14, why did you make the choice? Would you make the choice to eliminate the sizes that serve a lesser percentage of the population? But it never goes that way. Um, but I also think there's this, my hypothesis would at least be in a way that we don't want you here. Like don't show up to our yoga studio with your little two-piece outfit with your tummy. We don't want to see that. Like we, I think it is a very much a gatekeeping of who belongs here and who doesn't and who can look what way and who does not. Um, and the thing that drives me extra nuts is that typically men can buy an extra, extra large piece of clothing, but a clothing of the same size, like an equitable size would not be even available in a women's option. Right. Because a men's extra, extra large would not. Well, well, also, let's be honest, women's sizing and clothing is bullshit. <laughs> also that. That's what I was trying to get at. <laughs> More flowery language. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, unfortunately, am unable to be flowery like that. So. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it makes no sense. And it, it changes, like, you can have a size... 16 in one manufacturer and then you try on a size 16 and another one and it doesn't fit you know there's no uniformity to any of it It, it's funny so my fiance dresses more androgynously masculinely tends to wear men's clothing and then like something will happen and she thought it was a pair of shorts that a friend had and she was like, oh, I like the length of those. Maybe I will try those. And so I think she's a smaller medium in men. She's definitely not more than a medium. And when we tried to find her the pair of shorts that our friends had, and she needed like a size 12 or 14, she was like, what the fuck is this? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, how can I be like a small medium but like the and almost the end of the range. And I was like, literally, welcome to my world. This <laughs> and there you go. And it was such a wild thing. And she, she just um, is so used to wearing clothes that are by, you know, inches, like waist and length. Yep. Yep. That having these other ascribed numbers. And then you throw in, you know, like, um, I love a good Madewell jean. Well, women's Madewell sizing is different than like a standard sizing. So when she's like, well, what size would I get you? I'm like, well, where are you? <laughs> that is never right. a sign. There's not any kind of baseline to anything. So I think that's a, also another conversation, which could be, I mean, I went wedding dress shopping. The, the way things go is that bridal sizes are smaller than street sizes, which is a great feeling. Um, I don't care about it, but I remember taking my sister who wore kind of straight size clothes, but then needed plus size bridal. That went horrible and she was crying. And, you know, my middle sister is really, really thin. And she's like, I'm not going to, she can't see me. <laughs> I can't 
say anything. And so I went back in and I said, you know, this isn't a you thing. This is the industry thing. And there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your body. Your fiance loves you. He loves your body. Like, this is okay. This experience you're having, I hate that it is so tearful and awful. And we go through, whether it's a wedding dress or not a wedding dress, that happens a lot. The disappointment of like, this thing doesn't fit like it should, or I ordered the size I always do and now it doesn't fit. Like, but then we have to second guess, is that my body changed or is it just that size at the store is ridiculous? It's really hard. So I think, yes, Amanda, there is a lack of support for different body types. I think there is a hard time accessing clothing to engage in a variety of activities. Um, I love winter sports. There's an active push to um, get more size range in winter clothes because it literally is dangerous. Like if you go skiing without appropriate gear, <laughs> you have some frostbite, we could have lots of problems if you're showing up in gear that is not appropriate. And usually what happens for those of us who this even works for is like I wear men's ski pants. Well, I'm a smidge over 5'8", so I can make it work. But if you're a five-two woman trying to wear a guy's ski pant in like an extra extra large, that is not going to be good or safe. Like now we gotta have the tailor do our ski pants. Like come on, like why can I not just buy a pair of ski pants? You don't want me skiing because I'm you know over a size 14 or 16. It's so wild, and it very clearly marks like who belongs and who does not. Yeah, no, totally. I think that uh, maybe the therapist world should petition the women's clothing industry or something. But uh, I was also thinking, I was also thinking about how just in general, you know, women's clothing, not only is the sizing bullshit, but also like the shapes and, and, you know, things like that, like, you know, thinking about being trans, for example, right? You know, I, don't wear women's clothing because it's not comfortable. Um, and men's clothing can be difficult to find because apparently uh, the men's clothing industry also does not make clothing for like men who have a butt or, you know, men who have thicker thighs. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that that's frustrating as well. I think that just in terms of body types in general, there's such, there's not anything really out there. Absolutely. And it's interesting because I think it goes back to that idea of where we internalize I'm the wrong thing. Like my body doesn't fit this in the correct way. So I am not the right men's masculine build. I'm not the right womanly shape. And it's so wild because there is no one way to me, there's no one way or a wrong way to have a body. And whether that it's so interesting to think that we would let the industry say like your body is wrong. Right. It's and a lot of power to give someone something, yeah, I suppose. Exactly. And it's a group. And then like the emotional toll, it's like mm-hmm. we're giving them a lot of power in that way too. And not only uh, like access to our emotions, it's access to our pocketbook. Well, yep hold out, I guess I need a jacket. This doesn't fit that great, but it's better than nothing. Most clothing for plus size women comes down to it's better than nothing. 
like, and we've come, I think, far, quote unquote, since I was younger. But my lord, it is. I I would be curious to be a younger person now, but like the options I had when I was younger were not great. And there definitely would be, oh, okay, there's a black one and a brown one or a black one and a navy one, like for a jacket. Because, you know, people in larger bodies only wear dark colors and they, God forbid, a print. Or you get like the complete other side where, you know, it's a little bit of a mamma nightdress and that's your other option. So it's really wild and we pay for it and we have to like shut up and take it. That is so terrible. Okay, so I've got another Amanda question next. She writes, I've spoken to those of smaller body types that experience self-consciousness around their size and feel the need to get larger. As a larger person, I've noticed a bit of animosity over this idea. What advice do you have for competing body types who seem to feel the same needs to reach a society, a societal body ideal expectation? This is a challenging question to answer because I am not someone that believes in like I don't believe in like reverse racism I don't I believe that thin privilege exists and I really need to say that firmly because I think there is a lot of fat phobia but I really think that the this question kind of comes about because of fat phobia like it's interesting to me that the larger body versus not larger body gets pitted against each other when we're both struggling with opposite sides of the same thing in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that it is equal, but like if, like when did we all agree that whatever was the body ideal and by having one set ideal that excludes so many right so if you're on one side of the spectrum and you need you want to gain to be considered beautiful in that way or you want to become smaller to be beautiful in that kind of way it's i'm like how do we disrupt this idea that there is one way and everything outside of that is not correct and i don't think we need to fight each other like there does not need to be a war over only plus size people or only thin people and that we need to fight like i'm like no 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 they keep us less powerful by fighting with each other or if we both all the groups said fuck that and we fought back towards the oppression i think we'd be in a better space because every my hope is that everyone would have the body autonomy to say there's nothing wrong with my body whether it's small or large there's and there should I think of like when I go to doctor's offices, you know, sometimes doctors are a little more with it and they might have a chair and a half or like a seat that is clearly delineated for a larger body. I don't see anyone having a hissy fit about that. But when we try to apply that to like a airplane or a concert venue or a sporting, you know, stadium, you're like, well, I'm paying. You shouldn't get that because I'm paying for my seat and that seat is twice the size of mine. I'm like, but you don't have that same hissy fit at the doctor because we both got the seat that we needed. Like, what? It's so confusing. So it that 
equality or fairness shows up um, in places and it can it has a lot more that it needs to show up in but I, I don't think the solution is competing for who has it worse and I'm always going to say that those of us in a larger body are more, more oppressed because things are not built for us like if you are very thin you can still fit into chairs you can still go spaces you can still move through your life relatively less harmed than the policing that occurs with larger bodies and god forbid it's a larger body that is not white so it is challenging and i don't think that fighting with each other or having the like hashtag body positive like fight in the instagram comments is not worth it because we need to be pushing it back against the system not each other right and you you were talking about not being sure like when we agreed on this body ideal but you know i think in part it was the 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 bullshit idea of the bmi has contributed to that definitely and hmm. (laughs) i knew this was gonna set you off (laughs) you know it's really interesting i already shared my mom's a lawyer um and It's so funny because I think of her as so smart. She is this woman who was a single mom for a while and then remarried my stepdad. She's been a partner at her law firm for forever. Literally, my whole life she's a partner. She worked at this law firm for four decades. And I think she's really friggin' smart. But then I say things to her like, you can decline getting weighed at the doctor's office. And she's like, no, I can't. I guess you totally can. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation with her about how if you are in a fat body, you are going to get different and less than medical care than others. And she was like astonished. And I, she was, well, my husband isn't treated differently. I was like, your husband's He's a great white dude. Dude, like, yeah. <laughs> and it was so wild to have this conversation and to say like, Talk with this person that I think is so smart and say, yeah, the BMI, bullshit. And my sister is an MP, and she also has kind of come around to this Hayes philosophy. She's the one with the wedding dress and the tears. Um, And it's been amazing to see her from, like, a healthcare provider. So my mom can hear it from her as a healthcare provider. She hears it from me as a mental health therapist and talk about how this idea and the pursuit of, you know, lowering your BMI, whatever, is actually so damaging. And it's so funny because it seems like challenging back against that is just something that either people don't know they can do, don't think they can do. It's one of those things that we, in a way, I think are shoved down our throat. And so it's like pacify you. And now there's a lot of us who are like, no, that's not going to work for me. And I want more people to say that's not going to work for me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, <laughs> BMI always sets off uh, therapists who work with eating disorders. <laughs> so much trash. It does not, like, and I think this fits with the clothing too. Like, the fact that someone who gets paid millions of dollars a year to pay, keep in mind, I love sports. So I think of football players. They could have the exact same BMI that I do. No one is going to say jack shit to them about their lab values, this, that, or other, because they're 
quote unquote pure muscle and they can still find clothing or you know i think of like chef right back this is gonna date me but like in the early 2000s Shaq was cool and back on mtv cribs he was talking about how i'm so tall so i have this like special superman bed and it's a circle and whatever and so he was talking about getting custom furniture because he was so tall if I was like, I needed to get custom furniture because of my body, that would be one of the most shameful things that someone could imagine is that I needed something custom because I had a large body. But when it's an athlete, it's okay. Because there is like a different path to that. And this is wild. The things that we have ascribed like passing okay approval to is completely backwards to me and i mean i'm i'm lucky that i don't need custom anything because god that would cost a fortune but it's so wild to think that i'm glorifying obesity or i'm a public health problem or what have you but that guy can make millions of dollars have experienced cte all these negative things but i'm the problem <laughs> that does not I, make yeah sense. yeah yeah Okay. So the next question I have is, you know, like you, you said earlier, like wellness is a pretty broad category, right? So just out of curiosity, what sorts of goals do people tend to have when it comes to wellness? And do you find that a certain emphasis or certain goals are automatically assumed for folks who are seeking wellness-based services? A hard question. So I think that people tend to um, assume that wellness equals weight loss and that somehow wellness services are targeted towards, I think, that incessant pursuit of whatever is better, which I think is a big kind of booby trap for those of us that are covering perfectionists people, you know, that idea of moving the finish line is always hard. Um, but I, my initial response is that those who, um, the goals that people are looking for in wellness can be driven by body. Um, and I think that even if it, I want to say it could be packaged nicely, but when we boil it down, to me, it tends to come back to diet culture. Um, but I also think it brings in that idea of orthorexia. And I don't know if you know that's a normal thing in the lexicon for most people, but orthorexia is not a DSM diagnosis, but it's this idea of I'm going to eat um, the best, the cleanest, the whatever is, the healthiest. Um, and it starts to make the um, our life experience smaller and smaller because of things that we can eat, do, consume, what have you, smaller and smaller. Um, and I think that philosophy almost fits into wellness, right? Like, um, I'm not going to do this thing because of, you know, I'm not going to go to this birthday party because they're just not going to have anything for me to eat. Or, you know, it's the same, to me, it can be the same idea when we try to push too hard for like the clean eating, we don't always have to do the most wellness thing. Sometimes wellness looks like a Netflix binge and that might be it. And sometimes, you know, we just had that ice storm here and that was like 
some downtime and, you know, thank you to the universe for keeping the power on in, you know, in my house this year. But it was, it's really interesting to think that people say things like, sitting is this generation's cancer. I'm like, no, we do not need to vilify sitting. You're like, what? Like, should we, can we get up and move? Absolutely. And there are people who cannot. And so what are they supposed to feel when they see that? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like, garbage. Why say that? You don't need to say that. So I think wellness can be a moving target that tends to be a really great fancy wrapper for diet. Yeah. Gotcha. When you were talking about orthorexia, you know, what came to mind to me was, you know, when we look at DSM-5 diagnoses, there's for, for addictions, there's the criteria like spending a significant amount of time or resources trying to get said thing. And, and that came to mind when talking about this too, because I think the narrower, narrower that gets for people, the more time you have to spend finding the food, the more energy you have to use prepping the food, uh, the more money you have to spend. So I don't know, kind of, that was a curious thought I had. I, I think it's definitely with merit because it also goes towards um, trust too. Because when I work with folks who struggle with orthorexia, there's this idea of, do I trust the people that are preparing it? Like if my mom is making my thing, is she going to sneak in an extra thigh exchange? Or I don't go to a restaurant because I know they are going to use the oil even if I tell them not to. Like, it's a lot and your world does get narrower. And so when I think of. And that also feels like an issue of over control, right? 100%. And I think this season that we're in kind of globally is a season where those of us who are prone to over control, this is where we're going to try and thrive, right? Like there is so mm -hmm. much uncertainty that I, here we go with my interesting analogies. But I think about it as like we're in this well and we're trying to like hang on for dear life. But in the nature of the well, it's dark and round and slippery and we can't see. That's the season where we, I can't tell you, I can tell you what the CDC said today, which is different than last year or two years ago. But that's not a bad thing. You know, we're learning more and more every day, but I can't make a prediction for six months from now, two years from now. And so for those of us that are over controlled, trying to grasp onto whatever we can so we feel that normalcy, that okay, it, it is such an insidious time for whether it's just over control or over control flowing into how we interact with our food, our bodies, our movement. It's very insidious right now. And there's some really interesting research coming out about COVID and eating disorders and what it's like right now. That doesn't, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, okay. Well, here's a, another Amanda question for you. She writes, I've become very active over the pandemic, kayaking and hiking almost daily. I've become quite healthy with all my blood labs showing positive results. However, I for almost a year didn't lose a single pound. Why do you think society only values the loss of size in the so-called health journey? when this journey necessarily doesn't seem to require size loss to achieve positive results? Because my answer to this is because it's never about the health. 
the whole thing, I'm worried about your health, is really just fat phobia. People are not concerned about your health, my health, any of the health. People care about or people's own fat phobia. So if you were like, look, mom, my labs are great. Maybe your mom would care. <laughs> but, you know, if you ran around and you're like, I've been doing this stuff, my labs are so much improved and I feel so much better in my mind. People will still think you failed because your pant size did not change. And that is fat phobia. That, to me, that is the most damning piece of evidence that it is never really about the health of the individual that it is truly just about fat phobia makes total sense to me i see it so what do you think wellness and, and while we're at it mental health professionals i'll throw that in there too are lacking when it comes to working with folks in larger bodies i think there's a couple of different things so there's you know in social work we all have to do this class called hipsy which is like human behavior and we talk about the environment all these other things that come to it so we could talk about the environmental pieces of like do we have chairs that work and you know is it accessible is there stairs so there's those pieces but i also think that knowing um what it is like for or being aware that your clients may have a different experience than you if they're in a different body than you um and i think of you know, colleagues that I have that are in thin bodies, um, sometimes taking up space maybe where they might not need to. Um, I, I have I have attended a health at every size related event where they talked about fat experiences of fat individuals but I was being told about their experience by someone in a thin body as someone in a fat body. And that didn't feel very good. To me. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that didn't feel great. Um, but I also think that sometimes people are afraid of addressing it because for so long we're taught, like, you don't just like kind of that. We don't talk about politics or religion. We don't talk about bodies to someone's face. <laughs> um, and, it's interesting. So I have two sisters and one is 10 years younger than me and the other one is two and a half years younger than me. And the one that is two and a half years younger than me is relatively thin, um, 40, but we grew up kind of doing the same things. We both ski, we did the same. She did soccer and I did not, but I did track and other things, but we're just very different. And so she has a daughter and a son and I love them to bits. And I was home. It was during the pandemic. And my nephew said to me, um, you have a fat belly. And I said, yep. And he says, well, Auntie Shell, she has a belly too, but there's a baby in it. And I said, yep, but there's not a baby. There's not a baby in my belly. And he's like, oh. And I was like, yeah, I just have a fat body. And my sister is dying because of this conversation. She's, you know, completely mortified. And I said, you know, we all have different bodies in this family. Like, think about it. Uncle Fred has black skin and he's really tall. He's taller than anyone else in our family. And Auntie Sandy kind of has short hair and wears boy clothes, but she's a girl. So she has a different kind of body. And I have a fat body, but all the bodies are okay. And my sister, again, is dying of embarrassment, really, and shame in the corner. And like, Megan, I don't need you 
to tell him not to say those things to me. I need him to learn that my body is not a bad body. Right. And so though, like one of the things I ask clients, especially eating disorder clients is how do you feel working with a fat therapist? And I think some people get taken aback by that, but some folks are like, cool. I don't care about other people's bodies. I'm only super concerned about mine. Um, but it also provides this really interesting ground to do good work because sometimes my body is a literal nightmare for people and being able to help them disprove things they believe, like right. if I just wait, I won't be successful or I won't fall in love or I won't whatever. A lot of the clients, my fiance and I have been together nine and a half years, nine and a wow. half years. Most of my clients either have been with me when I got engaged a year ago. They know about my fiance, especially if I work with them in the treatment centers. I'm sure they heard plenty of anecdotes. So most of my clients tend to like me. I guess if they didn't like me, they wouldn't be my clients. But you know, <laughs> that I'm either likable or relatively successful. I clearly have someone else that loves me in the world. And it automatically takes their story of if I'm in a different body, then none of those things can happen for me. And it forces them to sit with that's not true. Mm -hmm. And it can be such a great space to do the work if they want to go there. And not everyone wants to go there and not, you know, that transference piece can be really helpful sometimes. So I guess when I think of, you know, wellness professionals and what do you lack? I'm like, are you brave enough to have those conversations? Like, would you say, to someone like, tell me about, I know that I'm in a thin body, or I know I'm in this kind of body. What is your experience? I know it's different than mine. Like all of those things that you feel scared to know, if your client is in a larger body than you, there's a hundred percent chance they already know that. <laughs> you are not going to make something worse by questioning what, like, or I shouldn't say questioning like that. You are not going to make something worse by asking to know more about their lived experience. <laughs> You're opening, you're trying, like, to me, if someone asked me that, I'd be like, oh, they really want to know what my experience is. Oh, hot damn, that's new and novel. Yeah, totally. And, and I mean, also taking those things into account, like, when I set up my office for my practice, I, you know, one of the things I considered and ensured was that I had seating that all bodies could sit in, you know? Um, that was one thing that was really important to me when looking for like furniture and like chairs for group and like, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it's a business thing. Like if you want your services to be accessible by all people, then make them accessible by all people. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I feel a little, it's just... You know, people just don't consider other people as much as they should. And it's it, it, it's a piss off sometimes. And I think the other thing some, I will at least own for like my nature is I want to have a space that looks pretty or looks like Instagram or looks like whatever. <laughs> Do not just make your office out of Instagram because that cute ass chair, it ain't going to fit everybody. Like the doctor's right. office I go to, I love my primary care person so much. They have some really cute chairs and they are torturous. And I am a smaller fat person. Like I can still shop most 
places. Like I could, well, Old Navy is a bad example, but like I could walk into many places and find stuff that fits me, which is a privilege. But like going in and being like, ugh, is the chair going to fit or not? is not a fun experience. And if I'm already there for blood work or you're going to do my blood pressure or anything else, I don't need to be having a panic attack about the freaking chair before. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I get that it's cute. I totally feel you. It is so cute. And. Not promoting wellness. Yes. So what advice do you have for people in larger bodies when it comes to navigating wellness? I would say the number, the first thing I would say is take up space. Ask for your, what you need. and. I know that those can be goals that we are working towards. I get that. Um, But you have just as much right to engage in wellness activities as anyone else. So if that means means you like ask for what you need, like I asked for the plus size rub, go for it. But if it means like taking a break from something or trying to diffuse from what you think other people are thinking about you, all of those things are as inherently worthy as the next. Like wellness shouldn't be a market that is both like either you belong or you do not. Like we can all pursue wellness. And I would encourage us to rethink wellness. Um, one of my favorite TED Talks um, is by Sean Aker. And it, he talks about how we... Um, especially in the United States, tend to have this philosophy of once I do X, then I'll be happy. And he says that it should really be the other way around because happiness will help us reach the other goals. Um, And so I kind of wonder if we can put wellness into a similar paradigm because there's always going to be more mindfulness we can do. There's always going to be more whatever. Um, So really coming to a piece of like, what is wellness for me? Like this, for me, this month, wellness looks like since I'm transitioning off of insurance, I'm not taking any new clothes this week. And I was telling my therapist the other day, like this feels so good. I I have clients that are having an incredibly hard time right now, but I feel like I, as a therapist, am handling it very well because I'm not maxed out. I'm not worried about the insurance. I'm not worried about the transition. And I made that boundary and space for myself. And other people could say, but you could be getting more money or you could be doing this. I totally could. But the hustle this month is not part of my wellness. Wellness for me this month right now looks like slowness. So being able to define wellness for ourselves, I think is important too, instead of keeping it an ever-changing finish line. Yeah, you know, you named two things, taking up space and asking for what you need, which are inherently things that most AFAB people struggle with because of the ways we're socialized. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me that hates saying that because it puts the onus on us. Like, I don't say us as me belonging to the AFAB community. It puts the onus on people that are not already in the majority to ask for something different. And while I would love for that to not be the case, I'm not sure that that's it. Like, I'm not sure that's our reality at the moment. And I think the only way of challenging those socializations 
is, you know, like that conversation I have with my nephew, like how are we teaching the generations that are coming after us in their perception of health, body, wellness, not a wrong way to have a body, um, gender as a construct, like how are the people that will influence, like, you know, maybe 50 years from now, 100 years from now, like we won't, you know, talking about the sex assigned at birth or maybe the birth certificates will change or maybe like it will be so different than it is now. And all that is going to come with changing how our generation talks about it and teaches the generations after us. Totally agree. I think that's very important. Um, Okay, well, moving on to more questions about you as a therapist. Um, So my next question is, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? To my knowledge, I have not worked with any undocumented clients. I do work with trans folks more commonly, um, mainly because of my education and the desire to serve a community that I am part of, meaning queer community. Um, and BIPOC folks to the extent that it is a bit like, yes, I do work with BIPOC folks and I don't want to take up space that, um, BIPOC therapists occupy. So if I am not the best fit to do whatever work needs to be done, I would love to have other therapists doing that work. Does that make yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Um, how do you determine your client's treatment plan goals and how will a client know when they're done with therapy? To me, it's a really collaborative experience. Um, and I find that the goals that bring folks to work with me on the surface are not always the goals that keep folks working with me. Um, so I can think of clients that will come in and say like, oh, I'm here because um, like I have a couple of, uh, of clients that are, you know, medical professionals or attorneys and, you know, it might be stress or that perfectionism piece that that will flow into working on mindfulness and skills. And then we talk about bodies and movement and there's way more there. So I think the goals, are usually defined by the client. We tend to revisit them throughout the year to see if they still fit. Um, the how would you folks know when they're done with therapy? I think that's also a conversation. And if it seems like we're having the same conversation a lot, I'll be like, is this still helpful for you? Should we? I think there's merit in a treatment break sometimes. Um, sometimes one of the saddest, I shouldn't say sad, um, I'm thinking of a client who. I did work with and now they're transitioning to working with someone else and that's a bummer because I care about the client and I know that like kind of passing the torch to this other therapist is the right thing to do because they have a different um, set of skills than I do and so it's like the next phase of the journey. So I believe in this like mindset of abundance i don't think like you i don't think you and i are in competition i don't think that myself and the therapist next door are like in competition i just don't think that that's accurate 
and that whole idea of scarcity too. Especially the way Austin is growing. Mm-hmm. But I really want people to get what they need. So if their goals shift over the time or the schedule doesn't work anymore, or whatever, my first thing is like, how do we make sure that we are meeting your needs? The therapy is not about me. Like, yes, we're right. in a relationship together, but the paramount thing is that you are getting what you want and if, or not what you want, what you need. And if that looks like, I'm going to go try out EMDR and I'm not EMDR certified, then we, like, I will find someone that does EMDR that, and I trust their work and we will get you set up. But it's all about like being transparent, I think, with one another. My goal is never to have someone in therapy from now until the end of their life. Like, yeah, that's one thing, but that is not the goal. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it's bittersweet when, we refer a client we've been working with elsewhere. Um, But, you know, I feel like it's kind of along the lines of it takes a village. You know, we all have different skill sets. We all have something different to offer. And, you know, at that point, like you've made the most progress you can with like, you know, with whatever issue they had. And now you have a better understanding of what's going on. And so it's like the end of one chapter and beginning of another, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So next question, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? 100%. (laughs) You said you're relational, so. Yeah, I will say that I think laughing happens more often, but um, there are definitely things that have, prompted mutual tears in session for sure yeah no i i totally agree and like crying i i don't i think has maybe happened a handful of times for me but like sometimes that is the most appropriate thing in that moment you know yeah i so i think of you know the times where that has occurred it's either because you know like loss of a pet yeah or you know, I, the other time that it's coming to mind was, I don't even think the client was tearful, but I was because of how vicious their internal monologue was and how different my experience of this person is from how they see themselves and how just truly heartbreaking and shattering that is. And so while that's mine to manage, I think it can be helpful for them to see someone who doesn't have to love them, right? Like I'm not their mom, I'm not their, you know, spouse in a way that is like a very pure and true experience of like hearing you talk this way about yourself is heartbreaking. And I am in your life, but I can only imagine that those that are in your life for more than an hour a week feel what I feel if magnified times mm-hmm. you know, so much more. Yeah. So it yeah, happens. for sure. And it's, you know, I think part of that clinical savvy to figure out where does it belong and 
how do you do that? But I think that is also how much experience I've had in the field and losing clients to eating disorders. Like I have had clients pass away and that is a horrible feeling. So I think that also makes it probably tender for me too, because it's for sure, yeah. terrible and I wish we didn't lose lives to this. Yeah. So the next question is one of my, I think, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, I don't know, I wrestle with this one and another one, but it's one of my favorite questions. Um, you know, and talking about like crying and laughing and that sort of thing, you know, when we're in session with somebody, like we were just talking about it, it's about them. How do you define holding space for someone? So I think there's a variety of answers. And I think there is the idea of like holding space in a session. But I think um, part of what I do expands beyond the session. And I think to my uh, work really more in agency world, um, I used to say to clients like, um, like I, I will hold that for you. And it was, one of the emotions in particular was joy because like they couldn't connect with that emotion at that time. And I'm like, okay, well, I will hold it until you can take it back. Um, or really like holding hope, I think is one of those things, especially for eating disorder folks or, you know, I've worked with folks who have been in and out of treatment lots and lots of times and, you know, the hope that it's going to get better or could get better, it might work this time. It can be really vulnerable to hope. Um, so sometimes holding space looks like holding on for things I know to be true, like full recovery is possible, that feels very untrue in the moment. So I think I hold a lot of things like that. But then the more in session of holding space looks like honor, like honoring what people want to do. I had someone this week say, like they weren't sure if they wanted to share the thing that was causing them emotions and not crying, like letting them decide, like just because you have a therapist doesn't mean that you are an open book right away to that person. And I'm not going to try to cry it out of someone if they're not ready. So holding space also looks like consent sometimes, or we can do this at your speed, or if you decide that we're going to crack open the book and then you want to slam it shut for a minute because it's too much to tolerate, we'll do it. And to me, it's the attunement to the other person, I think, is mm -hmm. the essential part of it. Totally, totally. Good answer. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Oh my goodness. Um... I would say that I learned that you cannot save the world. I cannot do it all. I cannot do it all and I need help, which is why I have, you know, a biller or a bookkeeper or all of that kind of thing. But I also um, think that I learn a lot through my clients, you know, especially the clients that are younger than me. Um, and, you know, sometimes I have these students whether it's UT or Texas State or wherever. And 
I see the cool things they're doing or the ways that they think about the world or um, I got to guest teach at uh, UT this uh, past semester, past fall. And the, the class was like, well, we don't learn about health at every size or anti-fat bias. And I was like, <laughs> and I had graduated, you know, in the same decade. And no one in my cohort would have asked those questions. So sometimes the cool things that I learn are that, you know, it might feel like a dumpster fire right now, but I still have hope for those behind us. <laughs> um, because it, I think being in this line of work puts me in a unique position to learn and be like in the front row for, you know, if we have 20 clients, that's like 20 different slices of life that we are in the front row for. And that's a pretty cool, special thing to be involved oh, yeah. in. Oh, yeah. Okay. What do you do to take care of yourself? And after an especially hard day, is there just one thing you just have to do? Um, yeah. How I answer this question and what my fiance would tell you might be two different things. <laughs> Well, give us both versions. I'm curious. <laughs> so, uh, so sometimes I would say like Peloton could be a thing. Um, usually my default answer would be like call my niece or nephew. Um, my fiance would say watch um, F1 YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> like when I tell you I got really into F1, I mean, I have watched drive to survive back to front multiple times i watched all the races and now like for example it's you know friday february 11th the team that i like to support the most mclaren launched their new car today and you better believe i watched and live streamed the whole thing and i'm Love gonna it. go on twitter after this and see what everyone had to say <laughs> that is definitely another way that i kind of uh, do something for me that really because my fiance is far less into it than I am. So it's definitely a just me thing. <laughs> Are you into like cars too in general, or is it just F1 racing? No, no. <laughs> what is so funny, I know next to nothing about cars. <laughs> Literally nothing. So I, the, the thing on the front of the car that comes up, I, it's, I call it a lid. I know it's not called that, but I can't think of what it's really called. But like, you got to open it to like put the fluids in. I can put in the windshield wiper fluid, and I think I can check the oil, but I can't do anything more than check it. But the I hood of the car. Yeah, yeah, the lid exactly. So I know nothing. But then when it comes to Formula One, I have learned all the things about the downforce and the different types of tires and the. <laughs> and I am so into it. I but love this. I'm also. So my fiance is from uh, Texas and she and her dad like NASCAR. I do not do NASCAR. I do not like NASCAR. It's not my thing. I fell in love with Formula One because it's a sport, but it's a story. Mm -hmm. And back in, back when I was in college, I went to University of Tennessee because I wanted to go to a big, huge, like football Greek life school. And so I did that. I was in a sorority. I was the chaplain in my sorority. I was like, that girl. I did all the things. And I took this class, Sociocultural Foundation of Sport and Leisure. And I took it in the fall of my senior year because 
what the thing that kind of went around Greek life was that this class was super cool and you essentially got to make like a ESPN segment for your final project. And like, oh, that's awesome. Well, the year that I took it, that was not the assignment and that was not the professor. And we had a new grad student from Germany named Lars who had been a male cheer- cheerleader at um, Ohio State and he was hardcore. And that class was a very rigorous class and I had not anticipated a very rigorous class <laughs> at all. Um, sorry, mom. <laughs> but what I learned was the reason I love sports so much is because they are foundational to relationships. Like, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's watching connection. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally see it. Yeah. Connection. And so to me, learning about F1 was falling in love with the different drivers, the stories of the drivers, the, you know, the exciting things about the sport. So the reason that I would say I love or I have come to pick like McLaren as my team is because there's a really big history with McLaren, but the drivers for McLaren clearly love the team. So the other thing that happened this week is one of the drivers, Lando Norris, signed a contract extension until 2025. And people are saying, oh, should he have done it or should he not have? Because, you know, Mercedes, they're a big competitor, will have people out of contract next year. He might could have got more money. And, you know, Lando said to them, like, you know, I might could have, but this team feels like home and working with people that I respect and I like is worth, you know, there's not a financial yeah. for that. So when yeah. I think of why I love sport or why I love F1, it is so much more than like which car goes faster. And granted that is very, very exciting, <laughs> but it's all about the story and the connection and life, which is also probably how I'm so relational as a therapist, but yeah, no, that, that all makes sense now. <laughs> Thanks for telling us more about that. Okay, the next one is another one of my favorite questions. How would you define happiness? F1, duh. (laughs) (laughs) A hot engine. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I guess when I think of happiness, I think of contentment and peace. Um, And I... I'm not sure that it is a, you know, the DBT person in me is like, you can define it as an emotion. But that, I don't think, gets at the spirit of the question, right? Like, if someone was like, what makes you happy? Or how do you feel happiness in your body? What does it feel like? To me, that is calm, peace. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it can be excitement, but it's like the absence of needing to do or be. Like, mm-hmm do something I don't need to be a certain way I don't need to show up in a certain fashion make someone else comfortable me I think all of that is wrapped up in happiness totally agree with that now for the next question you kind of alluded to it earlier but I figured I might as well ask it anyway are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy yes and yes um I as a therapist during a global pandemic, I do not know how I could do this work in this season without my therapist. <laughs> um, and, you know, the nature of life is hard. Um, but I was in therapy or experiencing uh, 
therapeutic support before I was ever a therapist. So Mm -hmm. I had my own recovery journey that I went on years ago. And so I saw or see how powerful that is, which is, you know, a big piece of what prompted me to become a therapist was my um, experience. And really being in College Station, too, there wasn't a lot of resources if you weren't a student at the university. Mm-hmm. So trying to find a therapist for someone who worked at the university was hard. Um, and then I've been in therapy. I got a therapist right when I moved to Austin like 10 years ago and saw them like a little bit. And then was like, I'm good. And then I went back, I don't know, maybe three years ago, it was before the pandemic. Um, and I find it so helpful. I mean, I was in a car accident and so like we've done stuff with like working on intrusive thoughts about car accidents and just, I think it probably helps me be a better therapist for sure, but also a better partner. I, you know, get. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. It's so important. Yeah. I, my therapist emailed this week that rates were going up. I was like, yes, girl. Yes. <laughs> Get it. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I think she does such good work. And I referred a friend to her, which is hilarious. So I know my friend sees her. <laughs> my friend and I are very close. And so I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to go see this friend. And she has to act like she doesn't know. <laughs> like, we should just have releases for each other. It's hilarious. <laughs> As a therapist, that's kind of a great feeling to be like oh my client trust my work or trust our relationship that they would send their friend that's always a cool feeling too and I yeah for sure she's an integral part of the team well Erin is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you or navigating wellness in a weight-centric world sure I think Knowing about navigating wellness in a weight-centric world is really, this is the tip of the iceberg. There's so much to both learn, read, and unlearn. Um, So I would say have a lot of compassion for yourself if this is work that you're interested in doing. Please don't be afraid to ask for what you need. Um, You deserve to have a positive experience just as much as anyone else. And my encouragement would be like, don't let shame or fear keep you from asking for what you need. Um, for clients or potential clients, I would say you can reach out to me. I have a website, email, socials, but please do not like slide into the DMs. That is not how we <laughs> work. <laughs> right, right. Um, other therapists, yes, like questions, thoughts, like feel free to reach out. Um, I tend to do trainings throughout the year. Um, I usually have different speaking engagements that I do. So if this is something you're interested in, want to know more, or think that you have clients that might benefit from this type of work, I tend to offer workshops throughout the year, as well as this summer, we have a a retreat coming. So please feel free to reach out um, if any of those kind of offerings are of interest. Awesome. And uh, your website will be in the show notes and uh, people can contact you from there. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show, Erin. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. We learned something new today and hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Cynthia Scheibel, licensed professional counselor and licensed chemical dependency counselor, who will be speaking about her practice in an area of specialty, boundaries as a spiritual practice. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T dot com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest podcasts rely solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash NextQuestPodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.